get into an anxiety fueling experience without thoroughly researching it first to try to calm my own nerves and I actually thought that you might also enjoy a brief history of audiobooks. So first up, um, I think that we need to bring back calling them talking books, which is what they were originally called. I'm doing this and I feel like now that I'm going to record one, I have a small amount of authority so please feel free to follow my lead in reviving this terminology. So although we can download them digitally and even stream them, the concept of an audiobook that is someone reading the text of a book, either full or abridged, has existed on other mediums at least since the 1930s, but definitely even prior to that with Thomas Edison's like phonograph. So spoken word audio versions of texts have been available in public libraries and sometimes even in music shops, and they were usually of shorter things like plays or poetry or prose, and certainly recording things that had only ever been passed down through oral history was also important. See, one of my favorite favorite movies of all time, Songcatcher with Janet McDeer and a very much a baby Emmy Rossum. I think it was one of her first movies, actually. Uh, anyway, so as recording tech has evolved, you know, like no longer just using gramophones and LPs, things like cassettes and CDs came along and they started to basically give this concept commercial appeal. So prior to the 1970s, talking books were mostly produced by the government to assist the blind. And so audio cassettes became the preferred medium, and then the phrase audiobook became more commonplace, actually becoming the industry standard by 1994. So unsurprisingly, as I said, audiobook kind of really got their start way back in the 1870s with Edison's of Phonograph, and he too had actually envisioned them as being primarily beneficial to the vision impaired, so people who were not able to see to read. But the first example of the recording that he did was just of Mary Had a Little Lamb, which I don't probably think was all that helpful, but nursery rhymes or a line or two of poetry was actually pretty much all the recording capacity that he had on the cylinders of the phonograph, so eventually, as records came along. You had maybe 20 minutes, um, which wasn't really long enough to fit a novel on, probably not even a short story, and then what would your option be? You know, you record like 80 albums that are just not a book, and like nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna buy all those. Uh, anyway, but LP is actually did help extend the capacity throughout the 1950s, because by then, you could do multiple volumes for some things, and people were still willing to buy it. The company that really created the audiobook industry as we know it today Katamon Records was established in 1952 in New York City, and they were the ones that kind of figured that out. Meanwhile, uh, for children's books, Listening Library was actually founded in 1955 by Anthony Ditlow, who was a partially blind man himself, uh, and his wife in their home in New Jersey. So by 1975, when cassette tapes were becoming more common, Books on Tape was founded in California, which started the trend of recording bestsellers, usually abridged versions, using actors to do the narration. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, most of the companies that were doing this were still fairly small, as were their catalog of books. So maybe they would have, like, at most a couple hundred. But as book clubs became popular and people started giving the option of an audiobook 
for their book club, then they became more in demand in terms of consumers. So by the 1990s, the audiobook industry had pretty much become an established component of uh, the publishing industry. And certainly in the last 20 years or so, technology has expanded the potential of audiobooks so much that really a lot of them now are like full-on productions that are, oddly enough, kind of reminiscent of old radio dramas. We know from podcasting that audio storytelling is probably a more popular medium now than it has been for a long time uh, because of the advent of all of the technology and portability and our busy lives and our innate feeling of wanting to ignore or tune out or over our overwhelming surroundings. Um, so I do think it's really cool. And I personally, I feel, first of all, very flattered and excited that I get to record the book because the book has a strong memoir component to it. It's written in first person from my perspective, so it makes sense that I would do it as opposed to like Liam Neeson. The title of my book is Ask Me About My Uterus, and it is mostly about my reproductive health struggles, so I feel like as much as I love Liam Neeson's voice, he may not be the right choice to narrate this book, so it's probably a good thing that I'm doing it. But anyway, so that's where I'm going to be for the next week, basically locked in a soundproof room with nothing but my memory. What a great way to start off 2018. It all started when I took what I now consider to be the worst shower of my life. I was a sophomore at Sarah Lawrence College, living with my roommate Rebecca in a small house on campus. It was entirely unremarkable, except for the giant Katie did that had spent weeks living above our bedroom door. Rebecca had groaned in her sleep when my alarm went off, burying her head under her pillow. This was always our first exchange in the morning, even if she wasn't conscious for it. We'd met the first week of freshman year, and our sense of humor and taste for hummus and good coffee had made us fast friends. I was a bit frantic by nature, always early, generally a bit weary of life. Rebecca was more laid back, except where social justice was concerned— In that domain, she was all action and advocacy, which inspired me from the outset. In general, she engaged in age-appropriate life experiences with gusto, while I was more hesitant. She was also the antithesis of a morning person. I had rolled out of bed on that otherwise unremarkable morning, having had no premonitions of terror in my sleep. I grabbed my towel and shower caddy, opened the door, and glanced at that freakish Katie did as I padded down the hall to the bathroom. I remember looking out the small window that faced campus as I undressed, the hour early enough that the world was quiet and still. The leaves had begun to change, but fall in New York could not rival the fire trees of where I had grown up in Maine. I'm from what you might call sturdy New England stock, and I had all but shed the lingering jowliness of a Maine accent. I wasn't ashamed of where I'd come from. Quite the contrary. I carried myself with what I'm sure was a rather pronounced affectation of New England pragmatism that bordered on elitism, despite the fact that I'd grown up in a seaport, about as unpretentious as you can get. Although I had no intention of living in Maine ever again, having arrived in New York full stop at 18 as many people do, I did sometimes miss its breathtaking natural beauty. New York City was stunning, too, but in a very different way. I'd never been in the shadows of such tall buildings before, and the pulse of the city thrummed in me long after I'd boarded the Metro North back to Bronxville. But I'd grown up a stone's throw from the ocean, in a town whose maritime history was inextricably linked with my own. 
We were all the descendants of sea captains, and the seashore was often the only place I'd felt safe and protected as a child. I would lie down in the wet sand, cross my arms over my chest, and wait for the waves to come in and break against me. As they receded, they would pull me into a tepid embrace that was warmer than anything I'd received from the human beings in my life. Miles and years and states away, I stuck my hand in the shower, letting the warm water wake up my fingers.' 